Let me say this. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me say a couple things. I, I, th- what's hard about this, what's hard about you know, doing a, a, you know, a lecture and telling a story, um, besides the fact that I've got a, a guest who decided to come hear me who's a history uh, professor, so that's fantastic. Now I'm up here sweating. Uh, so I've got a history teacher with me. So besides that, um, uh, you need to know that I'm not a trained historian. Um, I'm a layman historian. I love it. Um, it fascinates me. Um, I eat it up, but uh, this is not like, I hope you know this, I have no PhD in, in historical theology or anything like that. That would be like a bucket list dream of mine, but I don't have that, and so this is not like original scholarship or work or anything like that, and um, just for the sake of uh, intellectual honesty and to be above reproach here, you just need to know that uh, there are no original thoughts. This What I have tried to do is take all of the thoughts that I've compiled um, throughout the years and articles I've read and books I've read and conversations I've had and and try to condense it down. Um, So I'm taking a lot of other people's stuff and trying to make it uh, work for you. Um, And the reason I'm saying that is is I just don't, not only do I have the time, but I'm also, uh, I'm not even sure in a lot of ways where I would go to reference in all these different things. So you just need to know um, this is other people's work. And um, if people are listening to this recording and, and uh, wondering where this came from or that came from, I'm just not going to take the time to, to do that. Um, if you want to follow up and, and ask me for like a resource on a specific thing that I said, I could recommend that. Um, but um, I will say this. I'll give one person credit. Um, I just got back from um, a week and a half in Scotland, in our, in our partland in Scotland, Scotland Andy Longwe, um, is a, a true Presbyterian Scotsman and uh, really a historian himself. And, um, and so a lot of this, particularly when we get to uh, the, the Scottish Reformation and the history of Presbyterianism, a lot of this comes from my interactions with him. In fact, yesterday, uh, just so I made sure I had all of this in order, I FaceTimed with him and we kind of went through um, Presbyterian history a little bit just to make sure I had it all together. Um, so I will give him some credit here. Um, the other thing I would say is just don't worry about notes. Um, I, I would love for this to be, you, if you're a note taker and it helps you pay attention, that's fine. Um, you're welcome to take notes. But I would love for this to be uh, me just telling you the story, just telling you a story. And you can just sit back and listen and not worry about ooh, that was a great nugget. I wish I would have written that down or gotten that or I hope I can remember that, stuff like that. This is going to be recorded. Um, It's going to be posted online. You can go back to it and listen to it anytime you want. Um, I'm going to take our communications and graphics people and um, I didn't do this at first to have a nice sharp PowerPoint because like I said, I got a bunch of notes and I'm not entirely sure which direction I'm going to be going. Um, I just want the freedom to kind of go where I want to go. Um, But after this, I'm going to take the recording. I'm going to hand it to them. They're going to take it. Um, and they're going to put together a nice, neat, organized graphic of the whole story um, that will be online along with the lecture. So there's plenty of time to come back to it. I want you just to feel the freedom um, here on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation uh, to come and hear the story. Um, and that's what I intend to tell. We're going to tell the story. Uh, this is where I'm going. Um, I'm going to go from Martin Luther to Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. So 500 years um, of, of history and in 45 minutes, hour, if you're lucky. We'll see. Um, but I, I will say, this uh, getting to do this, and I don't get to just 
do this very often, and that's why it was so fun for me. But getting to do this has awakened once again, um, awakened once again, uh, just a love um, for the Lord of His faithfulness throughout the generations, um, a humility, a man. You really do use broken, frail. Uh, people throughout history to ensure that your gospel carries on. Um, you really do uh, draw straight lines with crooked sticks, as Spurgeon said. Um, and every person you hear um, in, this, in this time um, is a deeply, deeply flawed individual. And uh, this is the story not of man's greatness, but of God's triumph despite the weaknesses and frailty of men. And I would say this, we're still there. This is the 500th year of anniversary. When you start looking at church history, when you start looking at history in general, this is new. This is really new. We are still in the Reformation. I think what's going on um, here in the state uh, with the Reform resurgence um, going on here, I think what's going on um, internationally um, as it's, it's gone away from being a Western religion to a global uh, religion, we are still in the middle of what was ignited 500 years with Martin Luther. We are still in the Reformation in so many different ways. Um, always reforming is the, is the mantra of the Reformation, and we're still doing that in so many ways. So uh, those are all my introductory thoughts. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, from generation to generation, you are God. You are faithful. In our weakness, your power is made perfect. And so as we study the history of weak men and women, we see your power. We see your faithfulness. We see when the gospel should have died, you resurrected. We see when the entire world was against the truth of Christ and his gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. We see again and again in history, that you are faithful, you are good, you are sovereign, you reign, and history is your grand providential story for your glory and the good of your people. And uh, I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would leave here this morning, not just with our uh, minds engaged and, and, and tickling our intellectual um, curiosity, but that we would leave here in worship of our great God. Uh, through Christ we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's jump in. Um, here's, like I said, here's what I want to do. I want to go from Martin Luther to Taste Creek Presbyterian Church this morning. Um, I'm going to tell you up front, let me tell you kind of the movements I'm going to make. Uh, there are going to be four kind of big movements through it, so you can just have it in your mind as we go through it. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, then Presbyterianism, Okay. Uh, so the three major reformers that, we, um, that, that we, we see our history in, and then the movement of Presbyterianism. Um, I am going to spend a lot of time on Martin Luther because he's obviously the figure of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of him sparking the Reformation. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time on Martin Luther. So if I get through Martin Luther and you're looking at your watches and thinking, oh my, uh, we're going to, we'll speed up after Martin Luther. Uh, but I, I think being the 500th year, uh, this, is, this is where we need to start and we need to know Luther and everything uh, that came of that. Listen, when I, and, and, and I want you, I also want to release some of you who, who know nothing of church history um, and nothing of... Uh, any of this stuff, that's okay, um, completely okay. I came into the church, I came into the faith, I came into Christianity, um, completely ignorant of everything I'm about to say, 
completely ignorant of history. I think one of the failures of Americans in particular is our exceptionalism that basically we say America is the only thing that matters in all the history, I don't care. Um, this, this stuff I was completely ignorant of. Um, I, I kid you not, when, when, um, when I would hear the name Martin Luther uh, in churches and stuff like that when I first became a Christian, I thought they were talking about Martin Luther uh, King Jr. I thought, I thought they were talking about Martin Luther King. I didn't even know that there was a Martin Luther, another Martin Luther in history. Um, and so I, I just want to release you from any of that. It's okay if you're coming in like, that, like I came into the faith in that way. It does start with a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, is German, born in Germany in 1483. It is a misconception that he was kind of this isolated prophetic voice in the wilderness of heresy. That's kind of how he's portrayed, as if like the world and the church was just an utter darkness and somehow Martin Luther figured something out that nobody else figured out. There were already rumblings taking place against the atrocities of the church in that day. Uh, you've got guys like Zwingli, who had been preaching the gospel for a few years before Luther. Um, you have uh, John Huss, who protested the papacy a century before Luther and was burned. Uh, you have uh, Wycliffe, um, important in the 14th century. So um, Luther is kind of, there was kind of like a grassroots thing going on that led to Luther who kind of ignited the whole Thing. And it also is a misconception that the church has been wholly corrupt up until Luther as if our history only goes back 500 years. Um, that, that is not true. The church has always been a reforming institution. Um, we're a stubborn institution. We, uh, we got a lot of problems. We got a lot of ugly history. But it has always been a redemptive, reforming institution uh, throughout the centuries. And God has always been faithful to raise up reformers. Augustine in the 5th century, I read Augustine's writings in the 5th century, and I, I, I have more in common with him than a lot of what I read today. Um, uh, Benedict, Bernard of Clairvaux, Francis of Sisi, there, there have been reformers throughout church history. But with those qualifications aside, Martin Luther certainly was the most significant figure in launching what we now call the Protestant Reformation. Here's the world that he was living in. Um, I'm not, not going to talk about the ecclesial world, just the, 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 the way culture was at the time, because this is really important for a story. And it's this, that death was everywhere. Um, we take this for granted in history, but um, you could get a fever in the morning and be dead that evening. Um, the plagues, everything was going on there. And Luther himself had kind of an irrational, he battled anxiety and depression his whole life. And so he had this kind of, irrational obsession and fear with death and the afterlife and judgment. He had a, he had a uh, accident where he accidentally stabbed himself in an artery and almost bled to death. That scared him to death. Um, in 1505, he was in law school, um, early stages of law school, and he gets caught in a thunderstorm. And he's out in the field um, in the middle of the storm, scared to death, and he just cries out, uh, very cavalier, he cries out, uh, God save me and I'll become a monk. And uh, he survived the thunderstorm. And so uh, Luther had such a fear of, you know, I made a vow to God and I'm so fear, fearful of judgment and all this stuff that it was goodbye to law school and hello to the monastery two weeks later. Two weeks later, Martin Luther has dropped out of law school and he has entered a monastery. And of course, he chose the strictest monastery, an Augustinian monastery. Um, and... Um, and, and it was, um, it, it only got worse in the monastery. 
Again, his obsession by guilt and the fear of death and damnation, um, Luther uh, became the most pious monk you could ever imagine. Um, a quote he said is, if there was ever a monk that, got, that could get into heaven by monkery, it would have been me. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, not only did he follow the monastic order as strictly as possible, he actually added to the monastic order with his own forms of self-discipline, and including self-flagellation and, and, um, and, and, and uh, sleepless nights and fasting. Um, but even still, he could not find peace and assurance that he thought he would find in the monastery. In fact, it only got worse. The more he tried the more he realized he had fallen short. And here's why. Um, under late medieval theology, it was very much a bookkeeping religion. Uh, you had to name and confess your sins and then do penance for each and every sin. Penance is the sacrament of penance. You go, you confess your sins to a priest. The priest absolves you of your sins, but then gives you things you need to go do to make penance for your sins. Now, most normal people took that in a principle form. Okay, so if I do something bad, I need to go confess it and get forgiven. Luther took it literally, as you would imagine, and he would literally obsess over confession. Um, confess sins, leave, forget one, oh, got to go back, go to the priest, confess more, leave, break a commandment, commit a sin, go back, and on and on the process of guilt and fear would go to the point where the priest started to tell him, look, just come back when you've got something big to confess. You're wearing us out with confession. And, and it was actually that he had, a, um, he had a beyond his time view of sin. Like the view of sin that came out of the Reformation that we take for granted was not there at the time. And it's actually that that really started this whole process before he understood justification by faith alone, before he was railing against the papacy for indulgences, he understood sin. He understood the view of sin that you and I have, that where a Savior comes and says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you have lust in your heart towards her, you have committed adultery. Well, how do you deal with a view of sin like this? We had this, this profound view of the depravity of man that comes from Calvin, the second reformer we're going to talk about. Luther had that. He had that view of sin, but he was working within this system of confession and penance and confession and penance that was just absolutely destroying him. Meanwhile, because of his devotion and intelligence and giftedness, he was on the fast track toward priesthood, toward being ordained as a priest. Not every month's misconception that every monk is a priest. Not every monk is a priest. Um, but Luther was such a gifted and devout monk that he was um, on the fast track for that, and he was ordained in 1507 as a priest. And at the moment of ordination, his fear and guilt only gets worse. Um, specifically, because now he is handling mass. Um, Catholic doctrine then and still to this day is, is mass is central. Um, where uh, the priest, um, is, is this doctrine of transubstantiation, um, where they believe that the bread and the wine is the actual body of Christ, the actual blood of Christ, and that that takes place... Um, when the priest consecrates the elements, and it is actually a reenactment of Calvary where Christ is crucified again for his people, and that is at the authority and power of the priesthood. So as Luther approached the altar to begin the service of his first communion, his first sacrament, um, he, he, uh, he approaches it just 
paralyzed with fear and trembling. The way he describes it now would seem to us now that he was having a total panic attack. Um, And and, um, when he recited these words, we offer unto thee the living, the true, and eternal God. When he said those words to people in his first Mass, um, this this is how he records it. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that. So this idea that me, a sinner, an unworthy sinner, is going to say to God, make this your body, make this your blood, re-crucify Christ is essentially what transubstantiation is. Whew, it overwhelmed him, and he said, I am dust and ashes full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. So now, Luther has added the weight of and pressures of being a priest, and this only elevates his attempts to discipline and punish him himself, to make him right. Um, he begins fasting at a really ridiculous, irresponsible rate, um, denying himself sleep through the nights, um, he, would, uh, he would whip himself, he would walk on stone floors on his knees, he would lay out in the snow without covering, trying anything, anything to give his soul peace, to do enough to prove to God. You can see how the works righteousness and self-righteousness is just killing him, and nothing works. What he decides to do is move on to doctoral studies in theology, hoping to find either relief or, he admitted, just distraction. I just need need to go study and get another degree. Maybe that will distract me from this torment. It only worsens, particularly as he studied the theology of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is big to Martin Luther, and as you're going to hear in the sermon tomorrow, it's what set really things apart. But when when he really started to see that God is righteous and demands righteousness from people. All of his fears, all of his anxieties, all of his obsession over death and damnation only elevated now to where God is righteous and he demands righteousness from people. And at this point, Luther began to hate God because of this unbearable burden that he has placed on people. Nonetheless, he graduates, he takes a position as a professor of biblical studies. Now, uh, that was, little did they know that his studies became the downfall of Roman Catholic abuses, because now he has, he has, because of his PhD studies, he now has linguistic skills in Greek and Hebrew, combined with um, the sudden availability of more original sources Um, And he starts to truly dig into the scriptures to actually discover what they are saying rather than just accepting what the church said that they were saying, which was normative at the time. At this point in medieval history, uh, the, the Bible is an incredibly mysterious book that is completely inaccessible to you. You take for granted just your Bible. 
completely mysterious book, completely inaccessible to you. Mass was done in Latin. Nobody knew what was going on. All, all it was was we've got this holy, mysterious book that the church has the authority and ability to tell you what it says. And he now has the skills to actually search the scriptures himself. At this time, um, and this is, um, this is a, a millennial. This is since 380 A.D., since 380 A.D., the official Bible of the church is the Latin Vulgate, okay? So in 380 A.D., the, 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 the Hebrew and Greek were translated into Latin, um, and that became the official Bible of the church. However, Luther began working with the Greek New Testaments, which were becoming more and more available at the time, and he made an enormous discovery. And this is fascinating. This is so fascinating. Um, if you don't think... Precision and exegesis and, and exegetical studies and preaching is important. He, this is what happened. He noticed that the Greek word repentance in the Greek is metanoia. He noticed that the Greek word repentance, metanoia, had been translated in the Latin Vulgate as do penance. So metanoia shows up everywhere in the New Testament, as you can imagine. But instead of translating the word repentance or repent, in the Vulgate, the word is translated do penance. Now you can imagine what this does to the Christian gospel. You can imagine what this does to Christianity and completely subverts the entire religion. For example, imagine this. Matthew 4, 17 Jesus shows up, he begins preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Latin Vulgate, do penance for the kingdom of God is at hand. So it completely subverts the Christian message away from turning from sin and turning toward Christ and turns it into this thing of what does it mean to repent? What does it mean? I've got to do stuff i got to do penance. And what does this penance do? The sacrament of the church. That whatever the church determines it to be. The process we have to do to make right with God. So what happened in this moment is all of the penance torture that Luther had been going through was stripped away. He now saw it as meaningless and unbiblical. Um, now this is the beginning of his freedom. He has yet to discover the fullness of the gospel, which we give him credit for. Um, but he does understand that all the self-harm and torture and punishment that he has been inflicting was a meaningless journey and that the true journey that he needed to be on was to discover the meaning of repentance. Most importantly, he begins with this discovery, he begins to feel the freedom to study and rediscover the scriptures and critique the church and what the church was saying. The church, the church at this time taught and still in, 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 in milder forms teaches, that there are two consequences of sin, guilt and punishment, okay? So when we think, you know, guilt and punishment, I'm not going to compare it to this. So the two consequences, guilt and punishment, the priest had the ability to absolve the guilt of the sin, but one still had to, un, to endure the punishment for sin. Um, that took place in the efforts in this life, again, through the sacrament of penance, and in the afterlife through the doctrine of purgatory. In purgatory, one will suffer and labor until he has worked off all the punishment of sin, and then he can be released to heaven. This could take millions and millions of years, according to Catholic doctrine at the time. Okay, 
at the time, Pope Leo, there was, the Pope was Leo X, okay? And Leo had a problem. He needed money. He needed a lot of money because he had decided he wanted to do this little building campaign. He wasn't building a nursery or, um, or a lower level. His building campaign was this thing called St. Peter's in Rome. That's a pretty big capital campaign. And so he creates a very, uh, he comes up with a very creative idea to pay for the capital campaign. He institutes the sale of indulgences. You have to remember that the Pope is viewed as the authority of Christ on earth. The keys of heaven belong to him so he could do with them as he pleased. Let them in, let them out. He has that much authority. So for a price, the Pope could issue you a, it's not necessarily a pardon of sin. The misunderstanding of the indulgence is you pay for it so that you can get to go sin. It's not how it worked. Instead, it was a get-out-of-purgatory-free card, essentially. Um, you could... So in that way, it did kind of turn into, I can send as much as I want because if I get the purgatory-free card, I won't have to spend time there uh, working it off. And you could do it for loved ones who are suffering in purgatory and get them out of the sufferings of purgatory. Um, so... so you would literally, and this was starting to come into Luther's world, there would literally be people on the streets selling indulgences, playing on the um, fears and tenderness of people, saying, think of your poor loved ones suffering right now in purgatory. Poor grandma in there working it off. And then the famous line, as soon as a coin in the coffer doth ring, a soul from purgatory doth spring. You could right now get your great sweet grandmother out of there to heaven. Just pay an indulgence for it. And people bought it. People were buying it everywhere. Well, Luther became furious over this practice, not necessarily over the false doctrine of it, though certainly he was mad about that, but the idea that one could buy or must buy God's mercy. So this is what happened. Martin Luther wanted to debate the topic, and he did what people did at the time when you wanted a debate. He wrote up a set of propositions, theses, 95 specifically, 95 theses of which he wanted to debate the church on. Um, and he did what they did in the custom time. This customary, if you want to debate, you would do this. He, would po- he posted them on uh, the door of the church in Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago. That's why we're here. And the first of those theses, now having understand his discovery of metanoia, and repentance, and do penance, and all that stuff, the first of the 95 theses reads this. When our Lord Jesus, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of a believer to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. So the first thing he's coming at the church about is, you have misrepentance. So he puts these on the door to debate. And at this point, he was still fully devoted to the church um, and only wishing to have a discussion, a debate. But people got a hold. Here's what happened. People got a hold of these theses, which were being printed on this new invention called the printing press. If in God's providence the printing press did not come around with Luther, none of this would happen. And the printing press was the internet of the day. Uh, So it's just this amazing new information dissemination device. And so they got his theses, they translated them into German, and they start to print them and ignited a revolution. 
Not necessarily the fullness of the gospel at the time. Just that the church is corrupt, that something needs to change. The church is messed up, something needs to change. In 1517, he's still not fully there with the fullness of the gospel. At this point, he just thinks he needs to point out some abuses and the Pope needs to clean this up. Little did he know that the Pope was the one behind all of the abuses. Well, instead, what happened is that this new invention called the printing press made his theses available not just all over Germany, but all over Europe. And they took off like wildfire. Suddenly, what he just meant to be a discussion and debate at the University of Wittenberg was turning into a revolution that would literally change the world. These theses reached the papacy. Um, They've become such a stir, they reached the papacy. The Pope's first attempt to squelch the situation and talk Luther down from his heresies uh, was just to send a delegation to have a conversation, talk him down, you need to recant, you know this isn't true, da-da-da. But long story short, through those attempts, Luther just would not budge. He would not recant of what he believed he has discovered. Um, and in fact, Luther had, by this point, Luther had gone much further than simply debating the interpretation of repentance and railing against indulgences. Luther has now discovered the gospel. Now, I'm not going to tell this story right now because this is my sermon tomorrow. Um, Romans, Romans 1.17, so you get spared that today. Uh, Romans 1.17. Uh, that my sermon title tomorrow is the verse that changed the world, um, where Luther, uh, where Luther realizes, oh my goodness, this righteousness that has haunted me is an alien righteousness that is given to me by faith. Completely changed his mind, his categories, and the world. And so we'll talk about that tomorrow, Romans 1:17. But. By this time, he's not just railing against the church. He's not just pointing out abuses. He's got the gospel, and he's on fire. Eventually, a papal bull, which is just an official decree of the pope, is issued. Luther, you have 60 days' notice, or you will be excommunicated if you do not return to the teaching of the church. What did Luther do? He waited 60 days, gathered his followers together in public, and burned the bull along with the canon of the Catholic Church. So you can see what he's become now. The issue became so enormous that Luther is summoned by the emperor of Rome himself to an assembly, the diet, that's a famous word for assembly, the diet of worms, and assured safety of his participation. If you will come to this, we ensure safety. We're not going to harm you. Now, the diet of worms is probably the true launching of the Reformation, okay? We, we say 1517. But really, the Diet of Worms, which was in 1521, is probably the launching of it. Because in 1517, he nailed the theses, and that gets all the attention. But like you've heard, he wasn't totally crystallized with all this yet. By this time, it's, this is true, and I'm taking you on, and the Diet of Worms was that showdown. So really, maybe 1521. So I don't know, maybe maybe in four years, we'll do this over again. That'll be our 500th (laughs) anniversary. He arrived in the city of Worms, much to his surprise, he was welcomed by massive crowds as a hero. His stuff has just taken over all of Europe. At the assembly, the prosecutor points to a table, lays out Dr. Luther's, uh, um, all of his writings, his theses, everything, and he says, Dr. Luther, are these yours? Luther says, yes. The prosecutor says, will you now before this august assembly deny everything that you have written? Luther says, can I have some time to think? And you know why? Because he got really scared. 
This is, this is, don't, don't read the biographies that show our heroes as, as the Marlboro men. They were not. He got scared. And he said, can I think about it? He said, we'll give you 24 hours. And in 24 hours of sleepless night, weakness, fear, my Lord, I don't want to deny you, but I'm scared of martyrdom. That's, that's refreshing, right? I'm scared, but I don't want to deny you, Jesus. He comes back. The next day, are these your books? Yes. Will you recant? Well, that's a difficult question. (laughs) Because there's some stuff in these writings that even my opponents would affirm. Still scared to death. Still trying to talk his way out of this thing. And uh, finally, the Inquisitor speaks frankly as possible. Martin Luther, enough. Will you recant? And then the famous line, I'll just read it for you. Since then, your lordship desires a simple reply. I will give you one without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust in the pope or the councils alone. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And... um, the assembly is stunned, don't know what to do, and they decide, it's late in the day, they decide to go to recess. They're fully expecting him to bow down, and they decide to go to recess to figure out what to do. Luther, amazingly, after standing for Christ, has this um, freedom and peace. And so during the recess, he and his best friend go to the pub next door. <laughs> and Luther says, this is his quote, Listen to this. While I and my friend were enjoying good German beer, God dealt the papacy a mighty blow. (laughs) How about that? (laughs) Amen. So before the final, they didn't know what to do with Luther. Before the final verdict was made, Luther was permitted to travel home, but he was kidnapped on the way because they knew it was coming. Sympathizers knew it was coming. The decision of the assembly, the edict of worms, the famous edict of worms, was that Luther was a heretic, which obviously condemned him to hell in the eyes of the church, and um, he was an outlaw. Um, And Luther could be killed by anyone, anytime, anywhere, without repercussion. But they saw it coming, they grab him, they take him into hiding, they kidnap him into hiding, and nobody knows where Luther is. Um, This is a really fascinating part of the story. He assumed a new identity, He grew a beard. I mean, we're talking total witness protection program stuff here. (laughs) Nobody knows where Luther is. And um, he takes on an entirely different identity. Uh, Sympathizers of the movement hide him out. And while in in hiding, he gets to work and the Reformation is born. His writings um, that we see, perhaps most importantly, his translation of the Bible. This doesn't get talked about with Luther enough. Probably even more influential is his translation of the Bible into German that he did while in hiding. That changed the world. Uh, because up until this point, the idea of the word of God in our native language was anathema. Okay? And so what Luther did and all this stuff is, I discovered this by, by learning the language and seeing what it actually says. I'm going to tell people what the Bible says. I'm going to put it in their language. It was completely... If Luther did nothing else in church history except translate the Bible into German, he would have been this great, huge hero of church history. But he did the Reformation, and the reason why you read a Bible in your own language is because of Martin Luther. 
So he translates the Bible into German, and then again, providentially, there's this thing called the printing press uh, going on, and Bibles start being available, and, and quickly the authority of the church is starting to come undone. I'm going to skip a lot of his later life. There's beautiful, um, uh, we can get into his marriage. Um, he, uh, you know, when you look at the Puritans, the Reformers and stuff like that, the black, um, the black eye of our heroes, I said every hero, you know, there's, every hero has, has his weaknesses and struggles and sins. Um, the, when you look at these heroes of our theology, the, the worst part about them is their, is their total neglect of their family, terrible marriages, um, didn't take care of the kids, any of that stuff. Uh, one of the things that makes Luther beautiful is, is, his, uh, is his marriage. Um, the letters that we can read with his, his wife, he, uh, he addressed her as Madame Brewmeister because she brewed him his, his beer, for, and they would have a beer when he'd come home, and he literally, that's what he addressed her to. His wife. It's just this really endearing letters. Um, but anyway, I, it would, I, I'm going to skip that. But, um, uh, I, but I, I do want to say this. In his old age, so he eventually came, eventually came out of hiding. In his old age, um, and, and I, don't wanna, I don't want to tell these stories and gloss over the wickedness, okay? In his old age, because that's what, that's what Christians do way too often. In his old age, um, he was suffering from incredible pain, incredible diseases. I mean, just so many ailments from de- crippling depression, and many historians now believe that he had gone crazy, dementia. Um, and he became a very ugly person. His last two published works um, were anti-Semitic railing against Jews. He, in his old, in his last years, he had this, out of nowhere, this crazy fixation against the Jewish people, and his writings are ugly. Um, his last two works, his last sermon was nothing but railing against Jews. And um, so here's the dark legacy. So, so you've got, we're sitting here talking about Luther and this, and this is the nature of, of the men that God used in the world and, and the fall and, uh, and, and the good and evil and all of these things. Um, another German fell in love with Martin Luther, his last two writings. We like him for his justification by faith alone writings. Another German fell in love with Luther's last two writings, Adolf Hitler. And um, when you visit um, Holocaust museums and, and things like that in Germany, they will say a lot of it, a lot of this nationalistic stuff goes back to Martin Luther. And so the Third Reich and the Reformation, in so many ways, come from this man. Um, and, and we could preach a sermon all day long on, on the implications of that. Um, on February 8th, 1946, at the age of 62, his companions by his bedside have to shout. His eardrums have bursted by this point from ear infections and stuff like that. He can barely hear. He's on his deathbed. Um, His last words, his his friends by his side scream at him so he could hear, Reverend Father, are you ready to die trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess the doctrine which you have taught in his name? And And he whispered, yes, and he dies. And so that's Martin Luther. Uh, like I said, his story was longer because that's, that's, that's what we're, that's the 500 years. Okay, 500 years ago, when Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door over in France, when Martin Luther was doing that, there was a um, eight-year-old, a wee little lad, since I've been in Scotland, there was a wee little lad uh, in, in France named John Calvin. Brilliant, brilliant man turned into a brilliant man, 
like Luther, training to be a lawyer, but um, became intrigued by philosophy in his training. He learned Koine Greek, which is the, the, the form of Greek that you see in the New Testament. He learned Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, um, as well as began encountering the teachings of the Reformation, which were spreading everywhere. So like I said, Luther's stuff and the reforming, reformer's stuff is, was all over Europe at this time, and, and so Calvin begins to encounter it. Long story short, he is converted, and he immediately started studying and teaching this emerging Reformation thought. Um, there's persecute, he's persecuted um, as a sympathizer to the Reformation in France, and he flees to Switzerland. It's in Geneva, in Geneva, Switzerland, that the most significant work, study, and teaching of the Re- Reformation takes place under John Calvin. Um, in 1536, he published the Institutes of uh, the Christian Religion. Um, that is his, that's his book, okay? He didn't publish much. He published the Institutes, and then throughout his life, he kept revisiting it and republishing it. There's so many editions. Um, and so the Institutes of Christian Religion, which became the apologetic for Reformed thought. He did do some commentaries. His commentaries are great, and some confessions. Um, Calvin was aware of Luther, Um, Luther was aware of Calvin. They respected one another. We do have some historical documents of of them writing to each other and about one another. But Calvin took Luther's movement and he really solidified it theologically. You can tell when I told the story of Luther that he was fiery, um, that he was just, he was brash, he was just getting to know this stuff. Well, Calvin took what Luther started and theologically solidified it into the theology that we now know, love, and appreciate. So what what people say is that Luther was the pioneer of the Reformation. John Calvin was the theologian of the Reformation. Um, There are a lot we probably disagree with when it comes to Martin Luther. Um, We agree with Calvin um, on just about everything. Um, uh, It's just Calvin is our guy much more than Luther is our guy. But it just wasn't his writings, but his teaching and discipleship that formed the theology of the Reformation. Now, this is really important. Um, for, for uh, guys like Will and, and campus, we have a campus ministry church who just appreciate a culture of discipleship that we're trying to cultivate in the church. It wasn't just books and preaching. The Reformation was very much a grassroots discipleship movement. And that's what Calvin did so well. Calvin did not write as much as the Reformers, but people came from everywhere to Geneva to sit at his feet, to do life with Calvin, and to let him teach them. He had a student under him in Geneva that said this, Calvin's Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth, ever since the days of the apostles. It was like if you sat with Calvin in Geneva, you felt like you were sitting at the feet of the very apostles. The name of that student was a Scotsman named John Knox. Now, John Knox is another brilliant person. Uh, Luther was the pioneer of the Reformation, Uh, Calvin was the theologian of the Reformation. John Knox was the preacher of the Reformation. He is a fiery preacher, a relentless expositor of Scripture. Uh, The way we do expository preaching here in the Presbyterian Church um, is what we get from Knox. So Knox is learning Reformed theology from Calvin in Geneva, but his heart is burning for his homeland, Scotland. His famous prayer is, uh, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Not, not give me Scotland. You get, you get the message. 
I, I want to see what's taking place in Europe. I want to see the Reformation. I want to see this revival. I want to see this resurgence. I want it in my homeland. Let me see that or I die. That's all I want in life. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. So he takes the theology of the Reformation and returns to his homeland, Scotland. Okay? So we've gone from um, Germany and Luther uh, to Calvin's Geneva John Knox, this really gifted preacher, studies under Calvin, takes all Calvin to Scotland. Um, I'm trusting geography here. Maybe it would have been helpful to have a map up there. But, so we're talking all of Europe at this time. It's been all over Europe. And then you've got England, right? You can picture England. And just I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I didn't know this stuff at one point either. But Scotland is the top of England, right? Top, the very top of England, which now is a part of the United Kingdom at the time. It wasn't. He goes to Scotland. Uh, with the Reformation theology. Now, parentheses, just because I can't help it, the historian in me can't help but mention this, and honestly, uh, I know that my friends in Scotland are going to be listening to this recording, and they would get mad if I did not mention this part, so uh, this is for you, Scotland. John Knox gets all the attention. We love John Knox. He's the father of our church and our history and all that, Uh, but before John Knox was a man named Patrick Hamilton, Uh, Before Knox was in Scotland, Patrick Hamilton, another Scotsman, uh, was there. And he brought the Reformation thought to Scotland before Knox and before Knox, before Scotland was ready for Knox. If Patrick Hamilton had not come, Knox could not have uh, succeeded in reforming Scotland. Hamilton came from Scottish nobility, traveled to Europe, caught the teachings of the Reformation, and was the first to bring it back to Scotland. Um, and he has, he has a beautiful story of martyrdom. Um, it, the, there was no way the country was ready for the Reformation when he came. He, he was the first to bring it. And so he is summoned to St. Andrews, the birthplace of golf. Uh, you, you, you know St. Andrews, that beautiful countryside. It's where uh, Will and Kate met in a coffee shop and had lattes, had their first kiss, and all the awesome St. Andrews stuff. Well, this is the history of St. Andrews. This is the true history of St. Andrews. Uh, it was the, um, the Vatican, at the, it would become the Vatican of the Protestant uh, faith. But it was, it was this, uh, it, was, um, it, was, uh, it, it was the central hub of theology, St. Andrews. He was summoned to St. Andrews, put on trial. He refused to deny his beliefs, was sentenced to burn at the stake uh, the same day uh, for being a heretic. Um, and he, his, his death was famous. And there's actually a place in the cobblestone um, where his, his initials are in the cobblestone at the exact place that this happened, and I stand on it and got a picture, um, and then later realize it's like really bad luck to do that. So um, I don't know. But you're not supposed to stand on it, but I stand on it like an American. Hey, Patrick Hamilton. Uh, so anyway, you're not supposed to stand there. But um, at this place, he refused to deny his belief. He was sentenced to death to be burned at the stake. His death was slow and painful because, as you know, with St. Andrews, if you've ever watched the British Open of St. Andrews, they got a little bit of wind over there. And the wind kept put, putting the flames out. And they had to keep lighting it. And they kept putting the flames out. And he burned to death for six hours. Six hours with just confidence, reciting the scriptures, singing the psalms, telling them, come light the flames. Six hours burned to death in St. Andrews. But his death was a turning point. It was said of Scotland that this direct quote, they, the, 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 the church authorities said, don't do that again. Don't burn them like that again. If you're going to burn them, 
uh, burn them in, 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 uh, inside away from people. Because this way says, this is a direct quote, famous quote in Scotland, the reek of Master Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it has blown upon. Meaning the country saw him die, they smelled him die, and they said, what is this man? Who is this man? My goodness, what did he believe? And they started asking questions of what had happened, and it prepared them for John Knox. So right after Hamilton's martyrdom, John Knox comes in, and the country's already wondering what is going on. Knox returns. Now, what you need to know about the Scottish Reformation versus the Reformation in Europe were the different enemies. Okay, this is a really important point. Hear me here so you can understand this. Luther, within the Holy Roman Empire, battled the Pope. Okay, that was the great enemy of of his Reformation. Knox and the English Reformers, and those are the Puritans, okay, Knox and the Puritans and the English Reformers, that all took place within the context of the British Empire. And so their battle was against the crown, okay? This 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 is very important. This is the distinction. In the Church of England which for the period uh, back and forth, uh, the Church of England is Catholic, Protestant, de- depending upon who is at the throne. But regardless of the faith, the one thing that was permanent and paramount in the Church of England is that the King of England is the head of the church. Okay? So in Roman Catholicism that Luther battled, the Pope is the head of the church, and the Church of England, the world's new empire, as, as Roman Empire is going down the, and the British Empire is taking over, the world's new empire, the king is the head of the church. And that is where the battle lines are going to be drawn for Knox, who brought Europe's Reformation back to Scotland, which now threatens England. Knox had the theology of Calvin, preached the theology of Calvin, but he added to it a system of church government rooted in this principle, and this comes from his battles with the monarchy. He brought the Reformed theology of Calvin with this principle. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. No man, no pope, no king, no queen. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Very, very novel concept in that time. And because of this, the church will not be organized as a hierarchy with an authoritative person sitting on top who has all the authority. Instead, the church will be organized um, as it is organized in the New Testament. Um, Local congregations under the oversight and authority of elders ordained by Jesus to be under shepherds of His church, ordained by Jesus to oversee the local churches that belong to Him and that He is the head. We will not have a government of a church with a person who runs things. Jesus runs things. We will have local congregations with ordained elders that Jesus ordains and gives authority to oversee, that's the key, oversee my people that belong to me. And the Greek word for elder is what? He goes, presbyter. And out of Knox's theology of church, Ecclesiology comes an alternative presbyterianism, Presbyterianism. John Knox wrote, writes the first book of discipline, which is the first Presbyterian church government document. So listen, by the way, as an aside, when we talk about being Presbyterians, we are not talking about the things that people think, we, you know, uh, you know TCPC is always given apologetic for all of our different doctrines and all that, and I'm totally fine with that because we believe in this Reformed theology stuff, so we're always defending some of the more controversial doctrines of the Reformed theology, election, 
um, infant baptism, things like that. Um, but, but that's not Presbyterian. That's, that's just Reformation. That's just everybody. What we are is this, this system of church government where Christ is the head of the church and nobody else. That is our main thing. So John, write, John Knox writes the, book, the first book of Discipline, which is the first Presbyterian church government document. The idea of Reformed Presbyterianism takes over Scotland, and in 1560, Scotland officially breaks from Rome and becomes a Protestant Presbyterian nation. Scotland, the nation, is literally Presbyterian. There was still a Scottish crown. There was still a monarch. There's still a Scottish crown. But here's the difference. And this is Knox. This is his thing. The church tells the king what to do, not the other way around. So there's a crown, but the king will come to our general assembly and we'll tell the king what to do. The church tells the king what to do. We, Christ is the head, not the king. In 1590, Knox's successor, um, Andrew Melville, writes the second book of discipline. And this is real Presbyterianism as we know it and as we practice it, which basically takes out the bishop. Uh, Knox, in the first book of discipline, had had a role of bishop. Um, In the second book, uh, the bishop is taken out, um, and that's Presbyterianism as we know it. So Knox is the founder, Melville is the chief architect. All right, now the battle lines are drawn, okay? Things are about to get really interesting. Um, Remember, at the time, there is no United Kingdom. So the way it works now is you've got um, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Those are all a United Kingdom, right? Well, um, at the time, uh, that's not the case. Scotland was its own independent nation. England was its own independent nation. Um, That goes back to who? Freedom. <laughs> William Wallace. William Wallace, right. That's, that's the story. So go rent Braveheart tonight, and, uh, and that's the story. That's the story of Scottish freedom from the tyranny of England. And so since William Wallace um, and his efforts, Scotland has been a free, independent nation. So you've got, here's the battle lines, okay? You've got Presbyterian theology, ecclesiology, government practice in Scotland. You've got the Church of England, obviously, in England. Now, this is where the showdown is going to take place. England, as the Church of England, obviously is the king is the head of the church. Scotland, as a Presbyterian nation, says Christ is the head of the church. We will have no king rule over us. Something interesting took place, though. Um, there was no successor to the crown in England. And so for a brief period, um, England, the, um, the king of Scotland, um, there was a union of the, of, of the monarchies, and the king of Scotland was the king of England as well. Uh, his name was King James. Where does that come in? Right, right, okay. King James, Bible. There's, he wrote a Bible? Um, or he had a Bible written. You may have heard of it. Uh, So he commissioned the King James Bible during his reign of this kind of union. And it was a very, um, this is, you're going to have to talk to a historian about how all that worked out. It was very messy. But there was this union of monarchies. King James is over England and Scotland, commissions the King James Bible. But here's what happened. After King James, King Charles in 1625, 
King Charles succeeds King James and now is on the throne of both England and Scotland. So now the King of England has some authority in Scotland, and that's where things get messy. William Laud is the Archbishop of the Church of England, and he tries to impose Episcopalianism onto Scotland. Um, he tries to... Uh, Episcopalianism is just the... It's the dumbed-down version of the Catholic, uh, Catholic structure. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the same hierarchy, but, but with the king as... Not, not modern... By the way, sorry. Not modern Episcopalianism, okay? Not... not <laughs> for the recording. Not modern Episcopalianism. Then... Then, they were back and forth between Catholic and Protestant and stuff like that, and the Episcopalian, speak, the Episcopalian is a form of church government, okay? The hierarchy with the king is the head. They try to implement that in Scotland. Well, if you know anything about the Scots, uh, if you watch Braveheart, you will see you don't do that to Scotland. And, um, and Scotland said, absolutely not. Their response is the Scottish National Covenant. Nearly the entire nation makes a covenant that Christ is my head, not the church. So citizens make a covenant before God to say to England, Jesus Christ is my head. You can take your Episcopalianism and whatever. Well, English, this begins some English persecution. They start sending in um, armies to invade Scotland over this issue. So Scotland responds with a lesser, it's still an important statement. It's, it's called the Solemn League and Covenant. Now here's what that was. It's the same as the, the covenant that they had made with this. Here's our, um, here's our proposal to you, England. We would like, our proposition is one confession, one catechism, one church government that we're all satisfied with, okay? That's our request. You want to you come in here and destroy us. We're not going to relent on Christ as the head of the church. Here's our proposal, the Solemn League and Covenant. The response of that, and now we're really starting to get into us, the response of that proposal was that, um, that the King of England called for an assembly in Westminster from 1643 to 1653 called the Westminster Assembly. And from there, we get the Westminster Confessions of Faith, the Westminster Catechisms, our doctrines that we hold dear, our confessions here in the church. So they said, okay, we'll do it. We'll do it. So the purpose of Westminster Assembly was to be this unifying document to prevent war. Could we come up with something that we all agree upon? Now, here's what's fascinating, and this is so... Uh, Scotland, and this is so uh, Presbyterians. Um, here's what's fascinating. They called for the assembly, um, and they let five uh, Scottish ministers, they let five Presbyterian ministers and three Scottish elders come to the assembly. So it's totally stacked, and they don't even have a right to vote. So, the, so you got five Scottish ministers and three ruling elders at the assembly who have no authority to vote. They just get to be there and participate in the discussion. But when you read the minutes, and historians tell you it's fascinating, when you read the minutes of Westminster Assembly, these five people took over. The five Scotch Presbyterians took over the assembly without any authority to vote, without any authority to do, just persuaded the entire Westminster Assembly. A name you've probably heard of that was there, that was hugely influential, is Samuel Rutherford. 
Samuel Rutherford was a Presbyterian uh, minister at the assembly, and he just won the floor on almost everything. When you look at the minutes of the assembly, it's Rutherford, Rutherford, Rutherford. Um, there is there's another famous guy, George Gillespie, a little less known, but here's the story. This is how much the Presbyterians were influencing it. There's a catechism question. If you know your catechisms, there is, uh, um, what is God? Right? You know that? And Mark Randall's going to stand and recite the answer now. <laughs> In his uh, wisdom being Will <laughs> Jamie. <laughs> so the catechism is Mark. Yeah, Mark's got it. Uh, that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. Let's clap for Mark. Randall. Well done, Mark. On the spot. Infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, righteousness, majesty, on and on the attributes go. Well, they, had, they were at the catechism question of what is God, and they could not answer the question. I mean, how do you answer that question, right? And they said, we need to pray. Let's just pray. And they called upon this Presbyterian elder. Um, they called upon, it, was, it wasn't Rutherford, it was um, Gillespie. They called, called upon Gillespie to pray, George Gillespie. He said, oh God, Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and your wisdom being holiness, power, and that's a true story. You're like, we'll go with that. <laughs> so a Presbyterian's prayer at Westminster Assembly became the answer to the catechism question. I mean, just taking over the assembly. Fascinating story. So Westminster Confession of Faith is adopted. Um, unifies the church, uh, but it's pretty much a Scottish Presbyterian document. It's amazing that this worked. But the, the Scots are like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this just happened. Praise the Lord. Because what came out of Westminster is what we want. Like, we didn't have to budge on anything. This is us. Well, they adopted it. The Westminster Confessions of Faith. So our catechisms, our creeds, what we study, what we rehearse in, in worship was the actual documents of the Scottish Parliament. Adopted in 1649 in Parliament. But England, to Scotland's great surprise and um, um, anger, completely rejected it. This is not us. Uh, Cromwell, if you know English history, I'm not getting into English Reformation issue. Cromwell is big on this. We're We're not taking this. This is not us. So Scotland adopted Westminster. England rejected it. This surprised the Scots who thought they had won this huge victory. England rejected it. And not only did they reject it, it was at this time that they decided we are going to wage war on these Presbyterians who just won't shut up about Christ as the head of the church. We're tired of it. The king will rule. And so enters 1622 to 1690 is the Scottish genocide, an utter massacre of Presbyterians. Um, 18,000 men and women die um, because these are the covenanters. You've heard that in history. They're the ones who signed the covenant. I will not give up on the covenant. Christ is the head, and they just, English armies come in and just wipe them out. You covenanter, death. Find covenanters worshiping, kill them all. Covenanters were being slaughtered. Um, They would worship in in fields. The English in their red coats would come and just kill anybody they find worshiping in the fields. Um, the most famous martyrdom story are the two Marys. You've probably heard this. 
um, because the reason why the story is told is there were two Marys that were martyred. One was older, and one was an 18-year-old young lady. 18 years old. Teenage lady. Love this. I mean, I hate this, but I love this. Um, They take the Marys. They put them out while the tide's out. They put them out, chain them to stakes, and say, the tide's coming in. You will confess that the king is the head of the church if you want off these stakes. And this 18-year-old girl quoted scripture, sang the Psalms until she drowned to death. Um, Just story after story after story like this that you can read about in the Book of Martyrs and other publications um, that took place, and it was a total genocide of Scotland. All right. We're getting there, all right? At the same time, here's what's going on. England is conquering the world, right? So we haven't even talked about that, but England's taking over the world with their imperialism. Um, And the covenanters that they did not kill, and this is the most fascinating part of the study to me. I did not know this part of our history. The covenanters that they did not kill were put on ships to go to the American colonies as slaves, Virginia specifically, before African slaves were Presbyterian slaves. I did not know that about our history. Before African slaves were covenanter, covenanter slaves. So if they, ki- they either killed you or they, they took you and you were slaves in the American colonies. Um, and this actually, Virginia specifically, and this actually formed, and I love this because of all the racial reconciliation stuff that's going on in our denomination right now. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I love this part of our story because I, I had underestimated, I had heard rumblings of it, I had under, underestimated. But there is a deep connection between Scots uh, Scottish Americans and African Americans because of their oppression and slavery history, which I did not know. Um, I read a fascinating article that, that made the connection of these two. Um, the, 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 the Presbyterians would sing their psalms. That's another thing we won't get into, but psalm, they sing psalms, psalmody. They would sing their psalms, and they actually were very influential in teaching um, African slaves their spiritual songs. So the spiritual songs of the African slaves in a lot of ways find their roots in um, the psalmody of Presbyterian slaves and exiles. So there was a deep connection between Scots and Africans. And um, even the immigrants, so the first wave of slaves were these Scottish exiles and covenanters, but even the immigrants that left Scotland under the persecution to get out of there and just come to this new world, even those immigrants still had this deep connection uh, with the African um, community, Um, so much so that slaves, many slaves, the only language they could speak was Scottish Gaelic as their language. So you will see these, um, you see these historical documents of runaway slave. Um, you'll recognize him because he only speaks Gaelic. This is Scottish language. So there was such a deep connection between the immigrants of Scotland, um, the slaves of Scotland, and the African community where they found such a camaraderie over their oppression and sufferings and persecution um, that they were even speaking the language of some of the Scottish Immigrants. The immigrants, so the slaves were mostly centralized in Virginia and tobacco, which was being exported to, um, Virginia tobacco was being exported back to Great Britain. Um, the, the immigrants that came, they mostly landed in New Jersey and South Carolina. Now this explains why, when you, what's, in, what's in New Jersey? 
Princeton. Princeton. Princeton is the bastion of Presbyterian Reformed theology at one point. It was that bastion of Presbyterian Reformed theology. So you got the Princeton, New Jersey thing happening, and then they landed in South Carolina. And you've got the South Carolina deep South Presbyterian culture. So we're going to get into that a little bit in just a minute. But the Southern Presbyterian culture is because they landed there. So you've got the New Jersey influence and South Carolina influence. And then here's the other interesting influence. They were poor people. Um, they were oppressed people. And so what they began to do is uh, moving into the cheapest land of the time, which was what? What would be the cheapest land of the time? Appalachia, right? Appalachia. Uh, 90%, at one point, 90% of Appalachia uh, was, um, was Scottish. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a fascinating article in his, in his book, Outliers, um, where he talks about, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, if, from the, for some of you that are from this region or have visited this region, you know the stubborn, um, culturally um, pride, in a beautiful way, of the Appalachia region, particularly eastern Kentucky, um, Malcolm Gladwell does this trace where that's because, um, that's because Scottish Presbyterians all settled there, and, and eastern Kentucky feels like Scotland in a lot of ways. The, the stubbornness, the determination, the, you know, all that. So anyway, huge influence, bluegrass music, hugely influenced by Scotch-Irish music. Um, so there's this beautiful connection to the Appalachia region and all of that, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, here, here's what I need you to know, and we're, we are, we are, I'm going to get you out of here early, okay? I, really, I, think, I think I'm going to do it. Um, all right. One of the founding fathers, so there was a preacher who, there was a preacher whose sermons really lit a fire during the American Revolution against the crown. And he had that in him because he was a Presbyterian preacher who um, was used to, I don't like the crown, and I don't like the king, and I'll, you know, we, we've done this over there, we can do this here. So his sermons really ignited a fire within the revolution, and he actually turned out to be uh, the only founding uh, father who was a minister. He was a Scots Presbyterian minister. Does anybody know his name? Bonus points. No, no. Witherspoon. Yeah. Good guess. Um, John Witherspoon. He was a preacher of the revolution, an enormous influence in drafting, and this is why this is important, okay? I'm about to feel very proud as a Presbyterian. He was an enormous influence in drafting the articles of the Confederacy, um, and, and essentially he was an enormous influence in figuring out how will this new confederacy, how will we be governed? And now when you look at, start, start thinking about the Presbyterian form of church government. What is it? It is a, it is a, a system of representation, it's a hierarchy of representation with checks and balances. That's what we are. You, you elect elders, elders, um, um, there's a plurality of leadership there, which is a system, and then elders are under the authority of a presbytery, and the presbytery is under the authority of, uh, of the General Assembly. Do you see a local, state, federal, representational government there? So the beauty of American democracy in so many ways was formed by the theology of Presbyterianism. 
and, um, and Witherspoon in particular. Witherspoon's direct descendant of John Knox. Also under the leadership of Witherspoon was formed the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America in 1789. Um, this continued on as the national denomination until, not surprisingly, the Civil War. Um, in 1861, the southern church split from the northern church, creating effectively... Now, you, if you're a true Presbyterian scholar, you're not going to like this because I know, I know there, there are different branches of Reformed thought and Presbyterianism that all over... I'm, it's a really broad brushstroke. I get it. I understand the OPC exists. I understand Cumberland uh, Presbyterian came out of the revival. I understand all that, but I'm just doing a broad brushstroke, okay? So just let me do that. Um, One national church, Civil War, 1861, Southern church splits. Now, it did split over theological reasons, no doubt. There was was a conservative-liberal debate. Liberals in the North, conservatives in the South, but the liberals liberals were just people who wanted to allow ministers to be ordained without strict subscription to Westminster, meaning if you took an exception to Westminster, you could still be ordained. That was liberal back then. That, now every minister who gets ordained in the Presbyterian Church almost takes an exception to something in Westminster. So that was the big controversy. Um, and so the liberals in the North and the conservatives in the South that say you have to strictly subscribe to, to, to Westminster, there is divide. Yes, theological reasons, but definitely, and we need to be honest about this part, Definitely over slavery as well, without a doubt. Uh, the slavery was a big issue, and the South, uh, the Southern Church, was, was pro-slavery to our shame. Um, the Southern Church um, holds on to orthodoxy. The Northern Church, the PCUSA, which is still in existence, the PCUSA in the North quickly begins to devolve into kind of progressive neo-orthodoxy liberalism. Um, and, you know, I mean, it just was a slippery slope, and, 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 and it's, it is what it is today. The Southern Church in the PCUS holds on to orthodoxy for quite a while. However, in the 1960s, uh, the revolution that changed everything, you know, uh, 1960s got a hold of the U.S. church, uh, and it began moving toward um, uh, liberal uh, neo-orthodoxy um, on uh, yes, theological issues, but social issues as well, and all this stuff. Uh, and so on um, December uh, 1973, there, this, is, this is unfair. There was a huge fight to reform the U.S. church, okay? Uh, there was journals that were published. There was a seminary that was formed. There was a huge fight to say to the Presbyterian U.S. and the South, so USA in the North, U.S. in the South, to say to the Presbyterian U.S., let's reform it, let's change it. The conservatives fought for a long time. They just didn't give up quickly. But it was clear that the U.S. church was going, to, was going downhill in its doctrine of theology and rejection of orthodoxy. So, December 1973, uh, delegates representing 260 congregations with a combined membership of 41,000 leaves the PCUS, gathers at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and organizes the National Presbyterian Church which later becomes the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. So out of the U.S. Church, the PCA is formed. Now, when the PCA is formed, the U.S. Church just joins with the USA Church, creating effectively a conservative branch of Presbyterianism, the Presbyterian USA, excuse me, liberal branch of Presbyterianism, Presbyterian USA, conservative branch of Presbyterianism, the PCA. 
Now, again, we don't want to sugarcoat the story. I said it was all over theological reasons. It was mainly over theological reasons. I want to be charitable to our founders of our denomination. Some are still living today. However, uh, what our denomination admitted two general assemblies ago and are still admitting and are still working on this is that it was also formed over issues of segregation. Um, that the, the PCA church was formed because another movement that was taking place was the segregation of congregations, and the PCA was formed as a denomination that was against segregation in a lot of ways. Not, um, not, in, not in writing, not in writing, but that was the undertones of it. And that is a part of our history that two general assemblies ago we admitted, we repented of, and now our entire denomination is going through a season of repentance and uh, reconciliation and saying we're sorry and thinking about um, ways to do that. But the, 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 the sadness of our history is we had, such a, we had such this deep connection with the African community over our persecution and oppression and slavery and all of that and um, as soon as we got embedded into power in the United States, um, the, nothing became more um, racist than the Southern Presbyterian Church. Um, it, was, it, was a really, it was a really bad institution for a time. All of them were. I had a historian once tell me um, who actually wrote, she, she's at EKU, um, she actually wrote the book on, on this. Um, uh, Mississippi Praying is her book. But anyway, she, said, she told me one time, she said, you know, Presbyterians get all the flack because uh, for being like kind of the, the racist Southern denomination. And she's like, and there's truth to it. You can't deny it. But here's the thing. Um, they were all like that. Um, it's just that you Presbyterians are so orderly and you can't keep minutes of everything. And so, and so when, we go, when historians go to study, the only people we can study are you all because you keep minutes. And, uh, and so our minutes are bad. They're bad. And we have repented of them, and we continue to repent of them. Segregation was a big issue. But nonetheless, the PCA was formed in 1973. We have had members at that very General Assembly. One of the founding members stood up and said he was sorry to the black community um, and, and told every church to go home and repent. Um, so there's been a, a, a denomination-wide repentance of all of that history. And the goodness of it is this. Um, what has happened in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, in the, uh, um, what do they call my generation? I guess the uh, X or whatever. I don't know what I am. But uh, my generation and the millennials is an amazing movement. Um, and this is a movement that has not been studied yet. And when I went over there to Scotland and started getting into the, to those uh, libraries that make me salivate and, and started thinking about studying and maybe doing a historical theology PhD, this is what I would love to study. Something has happened, and it's, and it's, and it's been the reform resurgence um, over two generations now. So that the most vibrant, spreading, global faith right now is reform. The most vibrant, the, the fastest-growing denomination is the PCA. In a world of progressive, subjective truth, the PCA is the fastest-growing denomination. A confessional denomination that believes in all these crazy reformed doctrines and all that stuff because it's riding the wave of this reformed resurgence that started. Um, uh, well, I'm not going. I, I, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, there's just there's a really cool movement that's taking place. They call it the Young, Restless, and Reform movement, but it's a resurgence of reformed thought, and the PCA has ridden that wave and has exploded, um, and. It, the PCA explodes on the scene under leadership of, you, you, you know the names, 
um, and, and significant leadership um, in our culture and in our society. And what happened was there was a random guy in Tennessee. I don't even know his name. I tried to find it again this week, and I couldn't find it. It is somewhere. Somebody has it. Maybe somebody in this room knows it. There's a random guy in Tennessee that died. And, um, and we have no idea why. He has no connection to this area, zero connection to this area. Uh, but, but he left money that he said must be used to plant a church, a PCA church, in the bluegrass. Nobody knows this guy. Nobody knows his connection. He has no relatives here. We have no idea where he came from. I can't remember how much money he left. But he has money that he left to the PCA that says that this could only be used to plant a church, a PCA church, in the bluegrass. And so uh, they're like, well, we got to do it. And, um, and so they called on a PCA church planter by the name of Al Lutz, um, who took this seed money and moved to Lexington and started uh, Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church um, in, what was the year? Who, huh? 84. 1984. Um, it was founded. Um, uh, it was, it, we began in an uh, apartment complex. Some of you here were even there, apartment complex off Taste Creek, thus the name Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. I know it's weird that we're on Man of War and called Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. It confuses everybody in our city. But uh, it started in an apartment complex um, over there and um, eventually bought this land. Some, some members uh, took a huge risk um, and bought this land. Um, when I came to the church, it was th- this was the sanctuary uh, now it is what it is. Um, we've had wonder, we have a wonderful history. We've had, we've had some tragedy in our history. And uh, one of the significant things that happened is we had a tragic, untimely death of, of a pastor who was a beloved pastor here. And, um, and something crazy happened uh, in the middle of the PCUS-PCA divide. So the Southern Church and the PCA, um, there was a young minister in Virginia who uh, was fighting those battles with a passion. Um, he, was, he was a little younger than me, actually, um, in the middle of the US, PCUS-PCA division. Um, and he ended up, he ended up uh, leaving Virginia, influential in the formation of PCA, leaving Virginia, uh, going to the most historically segregated racist congregation in America, Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis. Nobody would take that job. Nobody would take that job because it was, uh, it was, it, it's called independent, pre- okay. See, okay, I'm going to tell it real quickly. So Second Pres Memphis is the historic segregation church. That's where it all went down, Second Pres Memphis. Um, during the civil rights movement, there was a walk-in, and, and African Americans walked through um, in the middle of worship. The doors opened. They, they do a walk through the aisles. Um, holding their Bibles open to uh, the, 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 um, the Amos passage, let justice roll, roll down, and uh, just silently walked through it. And it sparked this whole thing. And there was a debate within Second Perez of segregation or non-segregation. The people that were not in favor of segregation formed another church down the street, independent Presbyterian church, which is an oxymoron. Independent Presbyterian, but it's like we will not be told what to do. We will have an all-white church. Well, they're looking for a minister eventually, and they cannot find one. Who wants to go to that, right? And uh, they call John Sartell. And, um, you know, if you, if, only if you were here for Sartell will you enjoy this story. If you're not, it's okay to check out, but it's a fascinating story. 
They call John Sartell, and uh, John Sartell says, uh, no way am I going to go to a segregationist church. <laughs> and he called his mentor. They keep calling him back. He said, we want you to come. We want you to come. He call, uh, calls his mentor, and, um, and he, says, he says, they want me to come here. He's in Virginia at the time. There's just no way. And, and the guy says, why? And he said, they're racists. They literally, in their constitutions, will not allow black membership. And he said, oh, so they're sinners. And he said, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so you're not going to go to church where sinners are. And, and he said, somebody's got to go there and change that place. And Sartell moved his family to Memphis. And by the time he left Memphis, the uh, Constitution obviously was overturned. Um, black membership, uh, black children, black preachers, uh, black staff, um, and, he, and he changed the culture. And then after that, Richie Sessions came. Um, a good friend of mine had hosted an event at, at um, Independent where they apologized to the entire city of Memphis for their history. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But anyway, Sartell is in Memphis. He builds this huge, Independent was a small group, and he builds this huge flagship church in the PCA. We have a tragedy happen here, untimely death of the pastor. Um, they, we get on the phone and call Sartell and say, um, and say uh, I know there's no way you'll do this, but you want to come be our pastor? And um, he's, I mean, Independent was like a 3,000-member church at the time. Um, we were reeling mess. And, uh, and just as he had gotten in the sweet spot of ministry, which is where you've been at a church for so long, people just don't care what you do, you know? Like, you can say whatever from the pulpit. It's like, ah, you know, nobody gets mad at you anymore. Uh, his grandparents are there. They built their dream house around the grandkids. He picks it all up and comes here, um, feels led by the Lord to come here with the only purpose of trying to heal this reeling congregation. And, um, and, I, and, and a good Scotsman shows up as a youth pastor. I found out I'm a Scotsman, Cunningham. So, uh, and so I show up to do youth ministry, and John and I get close, and... Um, and I, I seriously, I love, see, see, I'm so pumped about all the Scotland stuff now that I went there. I showed up at, at uh, Edinburgh Theological Seminary and, um, and introduced myself to the, kind of the guy who's taking care of the grounds. Uh, and I uh, said, I'm Robert Cunningham. He said, um, aye, tis a pity you're not, tis a pity uh, you're not uh, William Cunningham. And I said, what? <laughs> and he says, tis a pity you're not, your name's not William this is really good Scotch accent, I know. And, uh, and I said, okay. So we go inside to the seminary. I said, Andy, what was that? And he said, oh, he says, it's a pity your name's not William. I said, okay. And he's like, you don't know who William Cunningham is? I was like, no. And, um, and he took me, he said, come here. And we went to this big stained glass window, it was William Cunningham. And William Cunningham is they're like, y'all love Knox and Hamilton and all that stuff. We love William Cunningham. He's the greatest theologian that Scotland has ever produced. You don't understand how revered the name Cunningham is in the Church of Scotland. And I'm just like, hmm. And, uh, and then he told me the whole history that the Cunningham clan fought with William Wallace for Scottish independence. Uh, you know that scene, unite the clans. We were one of those clans. The Cunninghams. And... Uh, and if you are named Cunningham, you, you come from that clan. There are no other, that is where you come from. So, um, so this good youth pastor Scotsman walks into Taste Creek Presbyterian Church and, uh, 
And John and I became friends, and long story short, uh, and, uh, the, the, there was a, trans, a transitional period from Sartell um, to, to, uh, to me about six years ago, and, uh, and here we are. So, I meant to go Luther to Taste Free Presbyterian Church, but I went Luther to Cunningham, and, uh, and uh, that's a really, really uh, humbling thing to say. Uh, that's 500 years. 500 years of church history um, that I did, and I got us done in time. Um, as I did that, as I did that, and we're going to pray. As I did that for myself and my personal studies, um, I was overwhelmed by the weakness, the frailty, the impossibility of this ever working. I was overwhelmed by the way the people of God always exists as a persecuted, exiled minority. We have had a, and we talked a lot about this in the First Peter series. I talked about this last week when I talked about secularism of the West. We have had a brief period of Protestant, Western Protestant domination in the world, and it's going away. It's going away. But as I read our history, I'm thinking, well, things are getting back to normal. Like, this is what we are. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. We are a persecuted, exilic minority. But what I learned as I studied this is that a a humble, persecuted, repentant minority is far more powerful than a moral majority. Every time revival takes place, every time God takes over a country, every time uh, 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 we see um, a resurgence of the faith, it's in the least likely moments, not in the most likely moments. And so as I look at my sermon last week, as I went to Scotland, all this stuff, as I look at the, at the aggressive secularism of the West, as I look at the sexual revolution, as I look at the um, postmodernism and subjectivism of our day, as I look at people who hear with the story I just told and would say it's foolish and crazy and all that stuff, I, I just I get fired up. I think, I, think, uh, I think if we live as these exiles, holding fast to what we're going to talk about this tomorrow morning, justification by faith alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, not gimmicks, not techniques, not ministries, the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of its faithfulness, preaching, and discipleship, uh, that's when the Lord moves. So ironically, um, I left really encouraged by uh, what I think God's up to. So let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are on your throne and you choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. All throughout history, When it is darkest, light comes. And we pray, uh, Lord, here, that you would yet have mercy on the bluegrass, that you would yet have mercy in our land. We, We pray that we would humbly do our part, our part, um, in... in, in being a steward of this chapter of the Reformation, which is still going on. Or we are still plunging the depths of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. We are still marinating on what Martin Luther discovered and what John Calvin articulated. We are still learning what it means to say that Christ is the head of the church, not not Caesar, not the king, not Donald Trump. Jesus Christ, you reign. You are the head of the church, and you are the sovereign of history. And we proclaim that, Like our forefathers, give us their boldness. When we are weak, Lord, uh, we trust that we are strong. 
Help us to hold fast to the faith. And Lord, we pray for the next generation. Lord, that the gospel would penetrate their hearts and they would carry it on in ways that we are not even doing. That they would shame us with their devotion to Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, you are good and history testifies that it is so and we long for the end of the story when every tear will be wiped from every eye and we no more pain or dying or death. Um, For the former things have passed away and behold, you will make all things new. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.